This is Matthew McBride, author of Frank Sinatra and a Blender, and you're listening to Booked. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Libya Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. The book that we're going to be reviewing this week is Fringe, The Zodiac Paradox by Krista Faust. But before we get to talking about Krista Faust, hey, Livius, what's uh, what's special about today? Today is um, Father's Day. That's right. It, it is, uh, I don't know how many episodes now in a row we've recorded. I wish we would have kept track of this <laughs> yeah, on holidays. But yeah, we have hit like pretty much every holiday, every major holiday at least. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yep, that's what we do because we're losers and have no other life. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't really have a lot of big father to take plans for it today. Yeah. I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. <laughs> we'll talk about Father's Day a little later. So. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll, come, we'll, we'll circle back to that. Uh, for now, here's a little bit about the author, Krista Faust. Uh, she has written tie-ins to the Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Twilight Zone amongst others. Uh, her most recent novel, Money Shot, for Hard Case Crime, won the Crime Spree Award and was nominated for several others. A sequel is forthcoming. She lives in Los Angeles, California, and loves vintage shoes and noir cinema. We did not bump into her when we were in L.A., though, did we? Not that we're aware of. <laughs> yeah, there's a possibility she's going around telling people, like, I saw the guys from, from Book Podcast, but I didn't want to say anything. So, <laughs> it's possible. Yep. Right, possible, maybe. I mean, I yeah, know. she could. I mean, well, well, hopefully, we'll have her on the podcast, and she can tell her awesome. I saw you guys in a Starbucks in a hotel while I was <laughs> hanging out with uh, the guy from True Blood or something like that. Can I tell you what's going to happen? I think she's actually <laughs> just going to get a restraining order against us. That's true. Uh, can, can I tell the listeners what 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 actually occurred? Yeah. So we're i'm halfway through this book and i tell rob we have to have krista faust on the show because i want to talk to her about about this book and about you know um you know tie in to a tv show and the research that goes into it so i've got these questions and i go listen i don't know her but what if we ask the book podcast listening group um for some help with this so i post a thing saying hey the book team needs your help one of you guys has to know krista faust would someone please introduce us to her shoot her an email or whatever and let her know that you know we're totally cool and she should do our show. Seemed like so, a good idea. It seemed like a great idea, right? <laughs> In under a minute, I received a private message. I'm, I'm not going to say who it was from, but it was from a, a, you know, a, a friend of the show that said, hey, I, I could probably help you guys out. I, I'm going to go ahead and shoot her an email. I go, this is great. About two hours go by. I get another direct message from another friend of the show that says, hey, I'm going to shoot her a note. I know her. Uh, I'm going to put in the good word for you guys. This is terrific. <laughs> the next morning, I wake up to another author who says, "Hey, I already, I already emailed her for you guys." So this poor woman has got to think we've got to be like the creepiest podcast ever. And I know there's at least one that's creepier than us, but she probably thinks we're the creepiest <laughs> podcast ever. Hey, maybe she just so. thinks we're that big of a deal that everybody wants her to be on us on our, on our podcast, not on us. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> oh if she didn't think we were creepy before, yeah. <laughs> uh, any rate, so. Um, Krista Faust, we did not put up everybody we know to hitting you up just in case you happen to be hearing this. We, we did just ask. And, and I did go on the group and I was like, hey, someone already said they would do this. That it was really fast. Thank you. But yeah. So anyway, thank you to the um, three friends of this show that did uh, attempt to uh, get a hold of Miss Faust for us. I appreciate it. Um, ready to talk about a book? 
Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell them what it's about? So this thing, this Fringe, right? This What was this? This was like a TV show, right? Oh, come on. Yeah, absolutely it was. <laughs> five, five seasons recently ended. Critically acclaimed Fringe explores new cases with endless impossibilities. Set in Boston, the FBI's Fringe division started when Special Agent Olivia Dunham enlisted institutionalized Fringe scientist Walter Bishop and his globe-trotting jack-of-all-trades son, Peter, to help in investigations that defy all human logic and the laws of nature. The first in an all-new series of tie-in novels. So this doesn't do anything to talk about the book that we read, but it does remind everybody what Fringe is. Yeah, now um, Rob and I are both fans of the show. Yeah. Um, I would say I'm one of those kind of like borderline fans. I know that sci-fi shows have like really, really like hardcore, almost religious fans. So I, I, I don't get, you know, I don't make all the ties and I don't remember which character was in which episode. So, um, but, you know, I was a very casual fan of the show. I did watch all five seasons. Um, really, really enjoyed it. So I was very much looking forward to reading this book. So you weren't deciphering the, um, like the, the, the hand and the butterfly and all those things when it went to commercial or came back from commercial? Dude, I read on how to do that and still didn't understand it. There's a whole, yeah, there's a whole yeah. cipher. Yeah, so I, 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 I probably would have, but it was way too hard for me, and I'm lazy. So. Yeah, well, that's, well, yeah. You can tell he's not lying when he says he's lazy. So, um, can we attack the synopsis real quick? Yeah, let's hit it. Okay, so I have issues with the synopsis, so right from the get-go. Um, fringe division started when Special Agent Olivia Dunham enlisted, blah, blah, blah. So, according to this book, which takes place in the... Um, early 70s mm-hmm. it seemed like someone else was starting the fringe division kind of towards the end of this didn't it uh yes and oh. um yeah and it definitely existed i think in the tv show definitely existed before uh olivia dunham for sure right so a little bit of an issue with the synopsis other than like you said the fact that it doesn't actually address what the zodiac paradox is <laughs> well yeah, I think it's like a soft introduction. That's yeah, or something. I don't know. Gotcha. But yeah, I don't know. Hardcore fans, which you would think would be the people that would read this book, are going to be upset by that mis uh, misrepresentation of the series. Yep. So there you go. So synopsis fail. Yeah, fail, fail right out of the gate. Hopefully, yep. that's not a uh, uh, you know a, sen- a sign of things <laughs> to come. Yeah. You want to? Do you want to give the the folks a better synopsis? Um, yeah. So the the book, like Olivia said, takes uh, place starting in the late '60s, and it kind of spans through to about the early '70s to mid '70s. Well, more like mid '70s. And um, so we're seeing a much younger uh, Walter Bishop and William Bell than uh, does typically exist in the series. And those are the two kind of focal characters of the book. It doesn't really involve all the characters we know from the series. Um, So, essentially what happens, and this isn't a spoiler because it's basically at the very beginning of the book, uh, Walter and William are out by Raiden Lake, which is a very crucial kind of area in the series. And they're, they're doing an experiment with a specific hallucinogenic drug that they've been uh, working on different, I guess, uh, formulas of, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So they're taking this drug, and um, they, they're kind of almost synchronizing their thoughts. There's telepathy going on and stuff, and, and like they notice a gate opens up 
like a, a like a hole or something something weird opens up over the lake so they go outside to investigate it uh at the same time in another universe um the zodiac killer is uh setting up to attack his next uh set of victims and it, it turns out that the people he was going to attack were, were undercover police officers, so he's on the run, um, and he would take drugs, LSD, while he was uh, attacking his victims. So he was also kind of tripping. Uh, also by Raiden Lake, which was a kind of heavy makeout spot kind of place, and um, running from the police ends up falling through this hole slash gate, whatever, between universes. And uh, so inadvertently... Uh, Walter and William brought the Zodiac Killer into our universe from another one. So let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> it's yeah. the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, yep, so definitely. crossed over into, into reality. Um, for anybody who might not be familiar with the Zodiac Killer, this, this was a real person um, who remains you know, unknown. His identity remains unknown. Maybe, maybe because William and Walter maybe put an end to him. It's possible, I don't know. <laughs> it's a possibility. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's kind of interesting because it, it, it plays with, you know, a little bit of historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think is an interesting choice for, for the show, is I'm not really sure that the show ever really addressed anything historical to tie in with its kind of weird fringe science-y stuff. Nothing that I can really remember. Yeah, not so much. Yeah. So definitely, uh, definitely an interesting choice. Um, also, it's it's you know for for anybody who's keeping score, that's a fringe fan. This is the first um, you know appearance of of the other side. Yeah, yeah. And so this is this book is pretty much set up to be an origin story of sorts because it takes place um, toward the beginning of Walter and William Bell working together. Um, and definitely before William Bell got, you know, really big or Walter, you know, it was while they were still young and, you know, um, and unexperienced, inexperienced and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It also introduces us to a third, um, fringe character, Nina Sharp, who, uh, is someone that William had met one time, but happens to live in, in California where, where they are when they realize that they may have inadvertently brought over a killer from the other side through their experiment. And, uh, William enlists her help, um, as someone who, I don't know, they kind of are a little, they'd been a little flirty, I guess, prior to that, but this is really their, their first time they've ever really been together. Yeah. They met kind of in passing and had, had a moment, I guess you could say, but it wasn't anything romantic or, you know, it was just kind of like a, you could tell that there was something there. Um, but yeah, um, introduces Nina and I might be jumping ahead, but I thought one of the more fantastic things about this book was the way that they explored, um, the unique relationship that William Bell and Nina have in the series by how they met and how they interact through this book. Oh, I agree. I think that their interaction, uh, um, all three of them, you know, to get specifically, yeah. yes, what you said, but all three of them, I think the interaction between the characters is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And it really sets, it, it explores, and that's what's nice about these types of books, it is, gives the author an opportunity to explore 
stuff that's from the series that's never quite explained or never given, you know, done justice on the screen. So um, that's definitely one of the things they went into in detail is why William and Walter and Nina have the relationships that they do uh, in the series and, you know, looking at stuff that happened years and years earlier. Yep. So I don't know how much more of the story we can actually Mm -hmm. talk about. Um, I will say it has your very typical fringe elements, as uh, as Rob had already said during his kind of version of the synopsis that, you know, the Zodiac Killer is pulled over from the other side, wreaks havoc here, and of course... Uh, I think it's really interesting because at one point these three characters, um, Bell and, and Bishop and, and Sharp, are having this conversation. And they're like, listen, we can't like out-thug this guy. We're scientists. We're going to have to use science to get rid of him, which <laughs> is, you know, I mean, that's really what the whole Fringe series is about is, you know, yeah, you know, um, once in a while they carried guns and they shot at someone, but re- realistically it was all done through through science. And that's, uh, I think that that was that tradition was uh, was honored in this in this tie-in book yeah and the the nice thing too about that wasn't just that um we can look at the zodiac killer a little bit too because uh, the character's name is alan because we see from his perspective at certain points of the book and um he's not just some like obsessed thug kind of person that they think he probably is because he's a serial killer uh, from his perspective, he's highly intelligent and very organized, and um, that's what makes it so that he's never caught, is that he's so careful and, and thoughtful and he plans ahead. So even when they're like, you know what, we're going to have to fight him with our brains because we don't know how to do this violent stuff, mm-hmm. still it's a challenge because this guy's really, really intelligent, and um, yeah, he, he tends to stay a step ahead of what the what the scientist folk are, are doing because they're just totally out of their element. Agreed. And I don't know if he's just smart in his own mind. Let's not forget this guy created ciphers that I think to this day still haven't been cracked. Right. Right. Now, um, I don't even know if anybody's actively trying to crack them, but I guess with the internet community being what it is, um, someone oh, well, probably is. I guess I'm just going to spoil that might, may or may not have been cracked in the book. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's, I guess that's true. So, um, yeah, so here's here's what's great. So Fringe has been over, we decided, for what, five or six months now? Mm-hmm. And um, revisiting these characters, even if they are... Okay, so for anybody who's seen the show, do you remember the, the flashback episodes? The, like, young Walter that basically yeah. is like Walter wearing, like, a crazy wig? Yeah, it's Walter <laughs> with a piece. <laughs> yeah, that's, like, how I had to picture him the whole time, like, with this, like, ridiculous <laughs> wig that he's wearing. And, you know, he still looks like he's a 60-year-old man, but, mm-hmm. like, you know, wearing a a really wide collar on his floral shirt you know because it's like the early 70s um so revisiting these characters um after the series has been over for a little bit is, was just fantastic and, and a very nice thing for a fan of the show fringe to to be able to kind of immerse themselves in first first great point i think yeah and um let's talk about that how did the characterization stand up uh in the book to what you're used to in the series I would have to say spot on. Now, I know that the obvious benefit there is that, you know, of course, every time you think William, you're, you're picturing like Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek minus the years, because that's yeah. who played William Bell. You know, you're picturing, I, I don't, what is um, the gentleman's name that plays Walter Bishop? John Noble. John Noble. Like I said, you're picturing him with that kind of weird uh, 
that weird wig when they're showing him back in the <laughs> early 80s or whatever those flashbacks went to. But um, one of the great things that, that Krista Faust was able to do is the language. So, of course, I mm-hmm. hear the voice in my head that way. But I, I, there were just so many times in the book where I was like, yes, that's exactly how Walter would have said it. Or, yes, that's exactly Nina the way she is on the show. So it's not just like, oh, I named these characters this and this is what they're doing. I mean, she was really able to capture the essence of their their language, I think. Yeah, especially with um, I felt like it was more on the nose with William than it was with Walter. But I think the temptation, like especially if I was writing Walter, which I never will because I have no reason to. But like I'd be so tempted to just do the goofy, you know, cuddly old man kind of dialogue which i have to imagine is different than what he you know when he was a lot younger you know but yeah i mean the characterizations are are pretty damn good and um and um william especially you see that overall uh remote like detached not heartless but uh what's a good word um like um clinical i think clinic yeah 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 he's and and walter's got that much more of an empathic kind of uh feel towards things he's a scientist and he's very excited about science that's another thing like you know he'll someone starts talking about some type of science and he's just super excited about talking about it and knowing more about it whereas william's a little bit more reserved and and um yeah picky maybe about the Mm -hmm. conversations yeah well, and I think that that also goes to Nina, who probably I thought even more than Belle was her very very future self. Mm-hmm. In the, um, yeah, you know these people uh, they don't need to know more than they need to know. They're kind of serving the the larger purpose, and I think that that was Nina Sharp, you know, through the first probably four seasons of Fringe. Yeah, for sure. So, dude, I never really thought about it, but how hot must Nina Sharp have been, like in this story? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, yeah, they definitely did. Yeah, and her <laughs> was one of the ongoing things that I thought was just a little bit weird. Was they always talked about how she ne- she never wore a bra? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, but yeah, Nina must have been smoking hot in the seventies. Yeah, all I'm and, saying. and William Bell was a little bit of a ladies' man. He had some charm about him that was very that was worked several times throughout the book. Yep, agreed. Yeah. Um, I don't want to again spoil the fun for for fans of fringe that want to go forward and read this but i will say that there are some great great payoffs Mm -hmm. um, for you throughout the course of the book things that are referenced that um, obviously you know william and and walter and nina don't know yet but there are things that come up um, throughout the course of the book that again are just just great for fans of the show to be able to uh to 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 see and, and to relive or or to when i say see it's almost like it's a secret that the book is sharing with you because Walter and William don't know what these things are or will be, or you know what I mean? Right. But you as a reader, you know, so it's so cool to have a little secret that you share with the book that even the main characters don't get. Yeah, that was definitely a rewarding part of the book. And another thing I thought I, I, I dug was in addition to, yeah, those types of Easter eggs of, of things that we'll see later in the actual like TV series was, laying the groundwork again like i said before like the the relationships between them but also their kind of their moral compass was explored and um there's a lot of emotion behind it and it was cool that you know i mean 
in a book like this, you don't necessarily have to go deep into the emotion of things, but she addressed things in such a in in such a great way that it was it was faithful to, um, I think the series and the series for me one of the best things about it was like, I mean Walter Bishop always just made me cry because his character was so um, emotionally like deep that whatever he was going through I just felt it and it was it was similar to that in the book so that was I, I appreciated that yeah it's um. For me, it was almost like, um, you know, his love of music comes through in this, Mm -hmm. which I thought, you know, one of my favorite, not one of, I'm pretty sure my very favorite and probably the most touching moment in that show is in the final season. And there's a scene where, um, where Walter, there's like a broken down cab or whatever. And he goes out there and he finds a, I don't know, it's a CD or a cassette or something. And he puts in music starts playing. It's probably the most powerful moment i think in, in the mm. entire fringe yep. series yeah i know what you're talking about and, and uh you know rob talks about crying all the time with walter I, I think i only cried the once and and i think that was it so but even his love of music is kind of explored and addressed a little bit in this and uh, actually uh for people who may have not um caught this at the top of the show what you heard was um a band <laughs> a band called violent sedan chair um and i think we're gonna have an outro song from them too which was a, a band that was basically created um, for the show, am I correct? Is that yeah, yeah? So um, we were able to track down a couple pieces of music. So this is this band actually uh, is is kind of prominently featured, um, not just through Walter's love of music, um, but their actual characters in this in this story too. Did you say Violent or Violet? Violet, Violet sedan chair. <laughs> I was going to correct you, but I, I thought you said it right. But I just wanted to be sure. I hope so, because I was looking at it right on my computer when I said it, so <laughs> hopefully I got it right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely cool. And I think that, now I'm remembering a couple of years back, and I don't remember what season, but I think at some point there was actually like a limited release of a vinyl um, that had a bunch of songs, and it was from Fringe, and it was like a weird Easter egg tie-in thing, but it went to independent like record stores and stuff, and mm-hmm. I think this is the music that that was on it. So, I don't know. I thought it was really cool, but then I didn't go through the effort of trying to find any of them. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, even that, being able to include that little, like you said, Easter egg in there and introducing the characters from this band was a very, very cool touch. Yeah. And uh, we we have to get back to, or I, I could, I'm just going to go back to now talking about crying. If I- <laughs> The tulip. All right, so you know there was that episode where um, you've seen all the episodes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Weller was on there. He was also a scientist. Uh, the guy that played Robocop. Okay. And he was time traveling. Okay. He had like yeah. all this weird shit wired onto his body and stuff, and he was traveling through time, mm-hmm. but it was causing harm to other people. Yeah, there's a whole conversation that Walter and this guy have about god and everything and looking for a sign you know and then he was uh, i don't know it has to do with his white tulip but anyway if if you if you watch that episode and you don't cry you don't have a soul that's all i'm gonna say it was like just the most like oh man it just tore me apart and then the fact that that comes back in like the season finale or i mean the series finale just like destroyed me it was so so well done i think that um i agree and I think that in some ways I wish I would have paid more attention to the show because I'm pretty sure there are other references in this in this story that I missed. Mm-hmm. I just get the feeling that I couldn't have possibly gotten all of them. Yeah. 
something. Like every okay. time you introduced a character by name, I was like racking my brain <laughs> trying to think, is this someone that pops up in the future? And you know what? There may very well be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not one to like rewatch TV series. I've tried a couple times with some favorites. It, it generally doesn't work for me. Um, but yeah, Fringe is definitely one of those shows. Fringe and Lost. If I had to watch two again to like pay attention, like really look for things, those would be the two shows that I would I would pick. Yeah, I may have to go watch that Tulips one again the next time I want to have a good cry. Yeah, God, I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> um, can we talk about one more thing before we get to quotes and wrap up? Yeah. Okay. So, canon. You know what canon is, right? Yeah, it's like um, the official story. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Um, I think that any time there's a tie-in to anything, there should be a requirement that somewhere past like the copyright page, there should be a canon or not non-canon statement. Like where it falls within yeah, the consideration of it being canon. Right. So for anybody who doesn't know, this is the Wikipedia uh, definition. In fiction, canon is the conceptual material accepted as official in a fictional universe's fan base. Um, it's, uh, so basically this is the way it works. Like when Lucas first licensed the Star Wars books to be written 15, 20 years ago, he said these were all canon. So I don't know if they were actually approved by him or members of his team, but basically what that means is if, uh, Luke Skywalker does something in this book, it is part of that universe. It's not, and it's not someone's idea or someone's, wouldn't it be cool if, right. Like it's factual information. So for me, um, (laughs) apparently I'm just a really really big dork Um, whenever I read a piece of fiction I take it as fact within that world okay so uh, and this can be a movie or or whatever it's to me it's okay it's you know Walter and William they went to you know wherever it was San Francisco LA wherever the hell they were you know and that's you know they went and they stayed with Nina like that to me has to be the the 100% honest to God's truth of what happened in the fringe world in order for me to enjoy it. So when I don't know, I become very, very skeptical about the stories, (laughs) which might sound a little weird, but uh, I totally, I, I, in order for me to really enjoy a a story, I have to have the total buy-in that this is actually what happened. If that makes sense. Not that I'm not all for uh, twists and turns and, and, you know, and, and, and unreliable narrators, all of that's okay to me, but the narrator can't be so unreliable. (laughs) Is for this to be somebody's whim, um, especially when I'm reading about characters that that I know and and you know and love. Mm. So I would have really liked to have known if this is actually canon. If Krista Faust was given storylines or given the authority to develop a history for um, Walter and, and William and Nina and anybody else in this book. So, I mean, the series is over, so I guess it really doesn't matter <laughs> to, to most people. Right. But to me, um, that's the difference between reading something that's part of a universe and then reading, you know, fan fiction. So. Oh, fan fiction. Yeah. <sighs> That'll come up. We'll be talking oh, about yeah. fan fiction. Yep. Yep. So yeah, when, uh, you write your, when you write your Walter story, when I- <laughs> you were talking about earlier. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, cool. Do you want to do some quotes? Do you have quotes? Um, I do. All right. My first quote is, uh, I thought it was interesting, but I think this actually really captures Walter and Walter's, um, you know, ideas. And this, this, you know, again, gave me the buy-in for, for Walter. Walter is, um, replying to someone who has said enough, enough. Walter asked on a roll now, 
that's a pretty subjective concept enough. It's, rel it's really relative to how much you already have and how much more you imagine you might want. It's not a good solid concept like, for example, a number. Let's say for the sake of argument that you have three of something, like three rolls of Neko wafers. You might think three is enough, while someone else could reasonably argue that three is too many. I, on the other hand, may believe that three is not anywhere near enough, and although we are each right in our own minds, none of us is right in the minds of the other two. Therefore, we are all both right and wrong at the same time. I knew exactly what you were going to... When you said enough, I was like, oh, I know this quote. Mm-hmm. It's a good spot. Um, that was when he was talking to that FBI agent, right? Larkin or yep. whatever? Yeah. Latimer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Latimer. Yeah, it was an L name. I guess it was close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I have a quote. Actually, it's from a part of the book that focuses... Uh, we're seeing things from Alan, the Zodiac Killer's perspective. And um, just like the way this was written... He's wandering through a neighborhood in San Francisco looking for a victim of opportunity, like someone who, you know, an easy, a victim that's going to be easy for him to, to take, take, take on. The CD single-room occupancy hotels and low-rent apartment buildings in that neighborhood were like vending machines filled with victims, an embarrassment of riches. It was almost too easy. That's awesome. Agreed. Um... This is kind of a long setup for what I hope is a, a good kind of punchline. Um, Walter and William um, first go to, to Nina's house, and uh, a guy answers the door. And I guess I'll read the description of the guy. Uh, the guy wasn't exactly handsome, with a long, dour face and large ears that protruded, protruded comically from long brown hair that had apparently never met a comb. But his dark, deeply shadowed eyes were intelligent, intense, and compelling. He was dressed in tight brick red corduroy pants that laced at the fly, a large gaudy pendant, and nothing else. Is Nina home? Bell asked, silently bristling at the sight of this unexpected shirtless person, although Walter couldn't imagine why. It seemed to him that Bell should feel some sense of kinship with the stranger since the two of them had very similar eyebrows. <laughs> Dude, Spock's eyebrows. That's just awesome. <laughs> That's good. I didn't really pick that up when I was reading it, but good good pull on that one. That's actually meant that that's one of the things that I thought uh as far as uh characterizing William Bell that Krista did very well was the arching the eyebrow mm-hmm. was one of his yep. signature moves and I was like I can totally see exactly what she's saying. So mm-hmm. that was a good choice for her. Uh here's another quote I have. It's just a really quick one, but I liked it. Uh they go to a at one point they go to a, a concert at a place called the Downward Dog. Which, isn't that like a yoga? It is. Yeah. So they go to this uh, concert of Violet Sedan Chair. And um, there, there's a description of the actual uh, the bar itself and how run down it is and how it might have looked cool at one point. But it was very beat up and, and in disrepair. And just this quick line I thought was really good. It stood out enough that I wanted to highlight it was, Behind it, the bartender looked just as old and just as badly treated. Like it's that. so so funny that you should mention that line because I was kind of wondering about um, just writing concepts when while I was reading that. So I was kind of wondering if someone actually goes and, and a line like that comes from sitting in a bar and actually seeing that. Right. If that's the kind of thing that you could just pull from your you know, from, from the yeah. back of your brain. Yeah. Um, I only have one more, and I I, I think that um, the reason I want to highlight this is, is because of how beautiful some of the writing is outside of capturing Walter and or William or Nina or anybody else. So 
Inside the girls' room, it was dank and shabby, the kind of room that was destined to be immortalized in a crime scene photo. Yeah. That's some badass shit right there. That is badass. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have any uh, other quotes, so there's a couple other things that I thought I'd mention that I thought were funny. There was a... You can tell... (laughs) That this is set like a long time ago because there's one scene when they're at a bar and there's a pregnant woman there as part of their group. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yep. The beer. They're, not, mm-hmm. they're talking about getting some drinks. And um, the pregnant woman says, no thanks. And another woman, who I think she may also have been pregnant, says, mm-hmm. you should have a beer. The hops are supposed to help you produce more nutritious breast milk. <laughs> yes, that's pretty awesome. And then that totally changes the chick's mind. There's another part where the FBI is raiding a place. <laughs> this guy runs in the bathroom to uh, to flush his stash. Mm-hmm. And he announces, I gotta flush my stash. And then he runs in the bathroom. And then the agents are like pounding on the door as he's in the bathroom trying to flush his stash. And he says, Occupado, man. Occupado. I just thought it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, can I do one more? Yeah, absolutely. This. This is uh, one example... And Livius, so we can cut this if it's too spoilery. But this is one example of uh, kind of a, a subtle uh, tribute to the to the series and, and a little spoiler of things to come. Um, <clears throat> this this one guy, David, who's a student that comes in way way toward the end of the book, um, is talking about how he feels like he's he's got constantly people are watching him and. Uh, Someone's kind of asking him, like, they're trying to, you know, they're assuming he just means, like, he's being paranoid or, you know, it's coincidence or whatever. And he says, no, uh, all the time they wear hats, like Alain de Leon in Le Samurai. And they never say anything. They just watch. And then there's, like, a conversation about people in fedoras watching people that comes up later. That was the only other thing I had highlighted, and I wasn't sure if it was too spoilery. So, I guess oh. that's... <laughs> Um, I mean, here's the thing. If you're going to read this book and not expect to have an observer at some point, you know. That's true. Yeah. Did it catch you off guard, too? That kind of gave me chills when he said that. He said, yeah. I see men watching me. Yeah. That was, that's, yeah. that's what I, that's, the, there's like, and especially at the, at the end when other things happen. Yep. And you, and you click and you realize what, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, it's a chilling moment where it's like, oh yeah, it was really good. It was some good payoffs for, uh, for people who are fans of the series. All right, you ready to do the wrap-up? Yeah, let's rock it. Um, and what can I say? I got to revisit with some old friends um, something that, uh, you know, it, it, it's not that it doesn't happen in fiction. I, I, for years, read a lot of different series, and there's a few I still try to, to keep up with, and it's always nice to, to visit those people. But I, mean, I just remember probably the first tie-in I ever read, I was... I don't know, maybe 12, and there were like two or three Star Wars books that, that were tie-ins that were done, and then that was kind of put to bed for years. But to be able to uh, to visit a, an old friend, especially when it's from you know television or movies in a whole new format, can be just, just terrific if it's done properly. So I've read some other tie-in stuff in my you know adult life that, that didn't work. Huge, huge fan of the show 24. Tried to read a 24 tie-in novel. It just came off as cheesy. Um, there's some other things I've tried to read 
uh, and they just didn't pay off, but um, not this book. So uh, the first in a series of three fringe books by Krista Faust um, gave me everything I could pretty much hope for in, in a fringe book. It gave me a, a good origin story, as long as it's canon. I'm reserving the right to remove hmm. a whole bunch of stars if I find out that this is basically fan fiction. <laughs> but if it's, <laughs> if it's canon, it, it gave me a great origin story. Um, it gave me some great insight into uh, a lot of things, but specifically kind of the relationship, I think, between Bell and, and Nina Sharp was was really important. Um, and, and the you know, Easter eggs, as Rob put it earlier, those little nods to things that happen in the future were just, just absolutely delightful. Faust does a terrific job of capturing the voice um, of these characters, in my opinion, and uh, totally a, a totally worthwhile read. I'm going to give it four and a half stars. Okay, if you find out if it's not canon, what's it going to be? Two stars. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> it's a two and a half star spread between canon and not canon. Dude, it just it, <laughs> I just tried like I, I went on that rant. And you were like, okay, like you had no opinion on canon. I, to me, it's like you know a minute for the fun. Uh, but uh, I I also read nonfiction, so I have a different perspective of the world than you do, I guess. Nonfiction is canon, though. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, here's what I've got to say about this book. Pretty much agree with everything Livia said. Uh, as far as approaching uh, a tie-in to a series, I think that uh, Christopher Foss did a great job of staying faithful to not only the characters and the and the stories and remaining within what could reasonably be considered a timeline without, you know, yeah, basically making it so that there's no it doesn't mess up what you see in the series. Um, but also, yeah, staying faithful to the the way that the characters act, their their personalities, their characteristics, their relationships. Uh, brings in the Zodiac Killer, which I was thinking about this earlier today. So this book is about a woman. Uh, so a woman author wrote a book about uh, a serial killer who travels from a different dimension. Now, if you think about the book we read last time... <laughs> A woman wrote a book about a serial killer who travels from a different time. So, like, right off the bat, just going into this book, there was some serious potential for, like, this thing going off the rails. Because, you know, we just read a book that has a very, very similar theme to it. Uh, and this particular book is is basically borrowing from a very rich story environment that already exists. So, like, it could have gone really bad, but it didn't. Uh, Christopher Foss wrote a book that was engaging um it, it was good for the fans but it didn't you know it wasn't just you know um patronizing or you know anything like that it, uh, it wasn't just you know eye candy or anything it was an actual good story that um was unique enough that it was its own story not just something that was borrowed from a universe uh, uh and and yeah i think i really really dug it so i'm gonna go with four stars for this i liked it a lot um, I was getting ready to read an Amazon review, <laughs> and then I heard what you said, and I was just going to read that other Amazon review about, I can't believe this woman wrote about a serial killer who's killing <laughs> women, and so, um, I, uh, I am going to read one one-star review, so we can discuss it. This is from Mark, uh, who says... The thing that drove me nuts about this book was that anyone who watched the series would know that Walter in his younger days was brilliant, charming, and in total control. He was much more like Belle than older Walter. He only became the goofy, fun Walter because he had part of his brain removed. 
The book totally ignored this and made Walter silly. I could not enjoy the book because Walter was wrong the whole, which is a bunch of H's time. Uh, I mean, how could you enjoy a book that messes up the main focus of the story? Next time you want to write a story author spelled A-U-T-H-E-R, run it by some fans first. Wow. Did you feel like he was silly? No. No, I didn't either. So I don't know where this is. No, I mean, like the silliness, if anything, was encapsulated in the fact that he was really into specific foods. But that's not even silly. That's just like an element of his character that I think could survive whatever level of seriousness his Mm -hmm. personality has. So one two star review from CWH. And it's mostly for this second sentence. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. It seemed that the book was just not very sophisticated. I'm sorry, third sentence. There was a lot of action that may have been better accomplished with special effects in video. Okay. I found myself reading just to get the book over with. Why wouldn't you just stop reading the goddamn book? Yeah, yeah. Why? I, I know I know why we don't stop reading books, because we're committed to, to getting to the last page for this podcast, but what the hell is wrong with people amazon you know they'll just let anyone review something on amazon that's the problem that is the problem except for authors which is kind of hugely ironic well maybe if they just spell it a-u-t-h-e-r they can get away with it yeah i'm not an author o-r i'm an author e-r emergency room author that's horrible speaking horrible (laughs) speaking of horrible uh, this isn't the only piece of uh writing that we read that involved fringe characters for this uh for this episode that's right. Um, we are going to do a second review. <laughs> a very, very short this review. One? <laughs> are we going to give stars to this one? Uh, is it fair to? We read it, right? Yeah, all right. Someone put it out there. Okay, so we are reviewing Causatum, maybe, by Cerulean Phoenix 7. <laughs> so if you haven't guessed yet, this is like Snow Princess Ice Queen, whatever the hell it was. <laughs> Snow Queen's Ice Dragon. How do you always yeah. forget this? Because it's horrible, and like many horrible things, you know, I have that block, like when something horrible happens to you in your life. Um, You repressed it? Yep. Cerulean Phoenix 7, as you may have guessed, this is a piece of fan fiction um, based on the show Fringe. Yeah. Uh, I am fairly certain this is not canon, and automatically it loses two and a half stars for that. (laughs) This is definitely not canon. Um, Um, Rob spent... um, I'm guessing quite some time today trying to find a piece of fringe yeah, um, I, fan fiction that apparently wasn't porn. Was there a lot of fringe porn? Oh, man. All right. So I went to fanfiction.net. Someone, you'll have to try this at some point. There's like a whole, um, it's just like fan fiction for pretty much anything you can imagine. It's like a, a what the hell am I trying to say? Like a web forum kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anybody can post anything, and so there. So I went to the fringe uh, section, and uh, there's all these filters you can do. There's different like uh, ratings of you know whether you know basically like movie ratings, but for for the fiction, um, you can sort by the characters, how many words. There's like a, it's very comprehensive how you can filter down, and um, but if I so I couldn't just filter out specific categories of fiction or like certain ratings i had to either you know just choose the rating i wanted to you know so i there was enough different ratings where i'm like well you know i want multiple so i didn't filter out the porn ones Mm -hmm. and man (laughs) i should actually oh man should i go to no 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 i was gonna go to the website and uh 
read you some of the preview. Dude, I, I went to the website, you know, like you were telling yeah. us we should. And I went to cartoons because I was thinking, like, what kind of fan fiction can you do for cartoons? There are 14,144 entries for My Little Pony. Dude, seriously. Yeah. I mean, this it's... This is insane. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to go... <laughs> I'm going to actually go right to the the porn rating, which is M. I'm assuming M is mature. I don't know. But... uh, M for maybe worth reading. Oh. All right. <laughs> Here's uh here's here's one of the porn porn ones because there's a title and then there's like a brief preview or like a synopsis basically a synopsis. Mm-hmm. Wonders of depigmentation. Peter Bishop concocts a serum that allows him to become temporarily invisible. Yeah, you can imagine where that goes. Oh, God, that's just so horrible. Yeah, that's like uh, that's like nightmarishly bad. I uh. There's also a tie-in book section. This is amazing. We're going to have to like review one of these every week, I think. This is, I mean, yeah. It's um, like like the world needs 11 tie-in pieces to Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. <laughs> but and to answer your question about how much mm-hmm. porn there is, I filter down to the M-rated uh, stories that are in English, and it's 420 stories. So anybody who's interested in some fringe porn, there's so much out there. Why would it? Okay. Anyway, let's get back to our review. I'm not, not going to try to figure <laughs> out why um, somebody would would want to do that, but um, uh, I, I I don't know. Okay, so <laughs> it's just really disturbing to me now. I can't think about anything else. So this story, 2,392 words by Cerulean Phoenix 7, um, takes place the day that um, Peter and Olivia get married. And it, uh, it starts out, and it's, it's really about, I guess, Walter, and Walter kind of watching this event unfold um, as he's joined by fringe character September, who then takes Walter back to show Walter how one moment can change everything. That's pretty much the whole story. Yeah, so it goes back to Walter, and I'm going to spoil this for some people. So if you're planning on reading Causatum by Cerulean Phoenix Seven, you may want to tune out right now. <laughs> um, the the story is, you know, September says, you know, one moment basically can change everything, and Walter's like, "What do you mean?" So um, September takes him back two years to a day where where Walter asks Peter to stop and get him a, a, a milkshake. And Peter then orders himself a cup of coffee and has like a last minute decision to order Olivia a cup of coffee, which is what spurns their entire relationship, according to uh, Blue Phoenix Seven. Blue Phoenix Seven. You did you look up Cerulean or did you no, know? No, I actually just knew that. Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. Maybe you should write fan fiction. Yeah, I might. I'm just uh, I'm just disappointed because there's already way too many My Little Pony stories. Yeah, dude, well, bronies. Away from this, but what if what if one of the My Little Pony stories? You ready for this? Uh-huh. Is uh, how the My Little Pony toy is telling us how this really weird guy from the 1930s is trying to give him to a girl in like 1980. Oh, that would be the best story ever. Pretty cool. Oh, that would mean that the guy that the serial killer in The Shining Girls is a brony. Do you know what bronies are? No, I don't know what bronies. <laughs> is, it, uh. is it a black My Little Pony? The term used to describe the fan community of the show My Little Pony 
so it's like adult males who are fans of the show My Little Pony. They're called Bruno. I, w- I, I went right for Black My Little Pony. Yeah, I know. You went right to the uh, racism. Oh, all right. Um, so let's talk about Causatum. What did you think? Um, it was cute, but it was not well written. Um, I agree. I think the concept was kind of interesting. Um, the thing is, it's, it, I don't. I mean, I see the fringe tying because it's Walter and Olivia and, and Peter in September, but it, it's almost like this could have been about anybody. Yeah. You know, it could have been any any person reflecting on the one moment that uh, that that changed the you know somebody's course to meet somebody else. Yeah, which I mean, they could totally Fifty Shades of Grey this story and strip it down and rate different characters and then get a million dollars. I think that's the hope of all fan fiction people. Yeah, hopefully one day, hopefully one day, Blue Phoenix will uh, will be the next El James. What do you think? I just yeah, yeah, right. Well, he's got the name part down. He, I'm assuming it's a he. I'm assuming um, it's a he too. My uh I just don't get, I don't know. I could see reimagining a story. Okay. Mhm. I I can't see the fan fiction portion of it. Um I, I actually the I have a very personal um perspective of fan fiction because an ex of mine uh, who I tried to get to read books uh, on a regular basis that I thought were really good that, that she would enjoy uh, would never read those books, but was constantly reading fan fiction. Um, and it just drove me nuts. Cause I, I'm like, this is just, it's, you know, it's, it's the empty calorie equivalent of, of reading. There's nothing to it. There's no substance. There's, you know, it's just junk food. And uh, it just drove me nuts because she would read it all the time but never read like you know good quality fiction and i think that's what it comes down to is like it's like these people love the characters in the universe so much that they want to see more of it um and it's just easy to consume it's the only thing i can think of i have to give them credit for being that involved in you know the children's cartoon or sisterhood of the traveling pants or whatever to feel like they want to throw something else into that world i just uh i I don't know i just i guess i don't understand fan fiction and the difference between that and what we just read is that krista faust was contracted to write tie-in stories like i said i'm assuming they're canon um Mm -hmm. they add something to the world that's real this is like fringe porn or god damn it i'm gonna have to go read some of those goddamn my little pony stories they're really bothering me although i wonder <laughs> if like clicking on one of those actually puts me on some kind of watch list somewhere that's where my fear comes in oh uh, you don't want to get arrested for being a brony a brony god that's so horrible dude what uh we were gonna need to move on to something else oh dude i just did a, a search for rick springfield on fanfiction.net 30 results now see now that's worth writing about <laughs> now i know we're reviewing next week 30 pieces of rick springfield fan fiction (sighs) all right moving on from the fanfic very quickly dude there's crossovers sorry i brought it up there's crossovers like that'll mix two totally unrelated things yeah i mean they're fans they can do whatever they want to interesting all right, but back to legit 
right? Or are we still talking about, are you, no, are you getting I'm sucked done. in? I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Don't be like my ex. Uh, back to the legit stuff. Um, this was, and in the synopsis it did say it was the first in a series. Uh, there are two more uh, books coming out from Christopher Faust uh, in the Fringe uh, universe. One's Fringe, The Burning Man. I have to imagine this is Olivia Focus because she's on the cover, and that's coming out July oh. 16th. And then Fringe, Sins of the Father, which comes out in October. And that's got Peter on the cover, so I have to imagine. Got a big kind of Peter focus on that one. Yeah, that one's all porn. All porn. It's just a collection of all the the, the fanfiction porn on fanfiction.net. While you're at it, let's quickly mention some of Krista Faust's other work. Um, her other tie-in work include um, Supernatural. It's a TV show I haven't watched, but I can understand. Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th. Sounds pretty cool. Um, a close friend of this show was saying that it was hard to find one of the Friday the 13th books that he'd love to read that. Um, but here's the one I don't get. <laughs> Snakes on a Plane. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie because it looked just god-awful. But I'm guessing this is like a novelization or more snakes on another plane or I don't I don't know. But I'm not really sure that one needed a tie-in. Yeah, that one's a little bit mysterious to me. But it's almost like, see, with a movie, it's not a big time commitment to see to watch a train wreck. You can just like get it out of the way. Well, but I like, thought this was a plane crash. Well, that's what I'm, okay. I'm sorry, my mixing my metaphors. <laughs> Very good, Livius. <laughs> but um, I. I if it's gonna be, I was gonna, I was about to say like I'd read it just to see how terrible it is, but I wouldn't because that's a lot of time, you know. I don't know, but anyway, all right. So, other works by Krista Faust, uh, one that we've mentioned so frequently on the on the show since uh, the last Spine Tingler Awards is the Double D Double Cross, which is uh, um, she's got it's the lesbian detective. Um, can't remember the name of the. The actual detective, but Double D Double Cross is a book that uh, Spinetickler Awards had for the cover, like the best cover. Also, one of the Dead Man series, the 13th uh, edition of the Dead Man series, written by Christopher Faust. She's also got a character called Angel Dare, who is currently in books Money Shot and Chokehold. Angel Dare, I read a little bit of the synopsis for those books, is a porn star uh, who. Um, like gets shot and left for dead in the money shot uh, book and then goes like on a revenge, not revenge, but like, you know, you know, is the, is is having survived and going after the people who shot her type of thing. So I have to imagine that she's kind of like a hard boiled detective kind of feel to her as well. There's a book called control freak, which is erotic horror. And then my favorite, which I have to buy this just because, it just sounds so weird. There's a short story called Foot Job. Maybe it's about a job. Someone has to run somewhere. Maybe. Possibly. Or like, you know, you're a foot model. You're like a shoe model or something. That's uh, that's very possible, too. Honestly, what are the chances that it's one of those explanations? It's zero. Zero. Yeah. There's no chance. Yeah. So I have to... I, I, I want to read it just to see what kind of twists can be in a story about foot jobs twist i know (laughs) you let me know how that one works out for you all right so coming up towards the end of the show here um the best part of booked apparently it's uh skip papersley book news 
This is Book News. I'm Skip Hapersley. Now for the news. On June 14th, award-winning author Neil Gaiman took over the Guardian Books website and started a bit of a buzz. The author commissioned the internet to finish a story for him. He's given the opening line and asked readers to complete the story in the comment thread. The opening line is, It wasn't just the murder, he decided. Everything else seemed to conspire to ruin his day as well. Even the cat. Writers have been filling up the site with such examples as, It wasn't just the murder, he decided. Everything else seemed to have conspired to ruin his day as well. Even the cat. OMG, Neil, I love you. It wasn't just the murder, he decided. Everything else seemed to be conspiring to ruin his day as well. Even the cat. When will the new Sandman comic come out? It wasn't just the murder, he decided. Everything else seemed to conspire to ruin his day as well. Even the cat. The end. In other news, local book review news correspondent would like to apologize to local book review podcaster for being the best thing on his podcast. It won't happen again. Here's a sample of next week's episode of that local book review podcast news segment. So... Oprah, she recommended a book, I think. Yeah. Finally, the New York Times bestsellers and fiction recap. Mary Kay Andrews knows it's ladies' night and the feeling's right at number five. The Kill Room by Jeffrey Deaver is DOA at number four POD. I guess there's a sequel to The Devil Wears Prada called Revenge Wears Prada by Lauren Weisberger at number three. Khalid Husseini has bounced back to number two with The Mountain's Echo. And Dan Brown is still humping a huge pile of money with Inferno at number one. This has been Book News. I'm Skip Papersley, signing off. Now that's what I'm talking about. So next week, that's what you're going to hear. Skip Papersley, toning it down a little bit, not being the best part of this show. I may have to advocate in the other direction. I don't know if I like boring Skip Papersley at all. Dude, he's gonna, he's gonna talk about books Oprah recommends. This is this is what the people want. Um, not our people. Hopefully, hopefully not our people. This podcaster wants that. So. If you're listening, skip Papersley. Fight the good fight. Keep up the good work. Yes, great work, Skip. Good job. <laughs> so next week you're after the credits. Wow. Oh wait, no, you're not because Livius doesn't edit this. I do. <laughs> Damn it. I'm gonna put Skip. A- he's gonna intro the episode. <laughs> all right i wouldn't do that that's crazy crazy talk but anyway all right anything uh, else you want to talk about this week rob yeah i've had a little rant and i don't know where this came from it just kind of came up in my mind uh and and I can't. so like in the process of doing research you know you're flipping through websites and uh and reading about a book or reading about this or that or prepping information so i see you know i'm just flipping through and so I kind of just glance at parts of things instead of reading the full thing. Um, and and so I, what I'm getting at is sometimes I just see genre classifications. And they sometimes really bother me. Neo-noir. Uh, neo-noir came up several times when I was going through uh, doing research for this and that today. And after seeing neo-noir enough times... I got so just bothered by it because, like, it doesn't really, to a reader, that doesn't really mean anything. Like, neo-noir is such an abstract idea. It doesn't, like, really, like, horror. Something horrible is going to happen, right? Something scary, terrifying. It's pretty obvious what horror is. Science fiction? Mm -hmm. Probably fiction that has a scientific, you know, so it's very, like, self-explanatory. Neo-noir, to me, doesn't really say much, especially to 
the common reader inwardly focused you know between writers i guess it could make sense or like if you're a writer who wants to to tell a publisher that you're like a specific genre that's what you write in use those kind of classifications but like when i see it on the internet like describing a piece of fiction that someone wrote it just drives me nuts because it's just so i don't know i mean are you with me on this or am i am oh I... no i i agree wholeheartedly yeah because like if i see something is magical realism that one I'm kind of on the fence about because I can kind of re- figure out what that means. Like it's set in reality, but there's a magical element to it. But like, mm-hmm. what the fuck is Slipstream? <laughs> Do you have any idea what Slipstream is or why I should care? <laughs> I have no idea what it is, but I know that it's really fucking funny. Or <laughs> it gets that reaction from you. It, Slipstream is a current of air or water driven back by a revolving propeller or jet engine. Oh, you know, and if you're writing fiction about that. I think you should very I don't want to clearly read define what that is because I don't want to read that shit. <laughs> or speculative fiction. Um, slipstream is a kind of fantastic or non-realistic fiction that crosses conventional genre boundaries between science fiction, fantasy, and mainstream literary fiction. See, that's what I thought speculative fiction was. I'm not going to look up speculative fiction. I think it's the same thing. So how do you know when oh, you're slipstream? Now, oh, okay. Now, now we're going to have now we're going to have to look up speculative fiction. Yeah. But I, all right. So like while you're looking that up. Mm-hmm. Neo noir, magical realism. Uh, something is transgressive. That doesn't mean anything to me. That doesn't mean anything at all. It doesn't mean anything I, at all. I'll defend magical realism in a way, um, only because I think that it's very important that you that your reader know if you're dealing in reality or not. And I'm not talking about the word realism. But when I get into a book, I want to know if it's going to have like a fantastical element of magic, or if it's a straight straight up story about some dude. You know what I mean? And that kind of goes back to like the canon thing. I want to yeah. know if it takes place in our world or if it takes place in a world where there is magic or dragons or My Little Ponies or whatever it is. My Little Ponies, yeah. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Speculative fiction is an umbrella term. Yeah, it's talking about umbrellas, dude. This is like slipstream <laughs> in the air currents. Is an umbrella term. You don't want to get your speculative fiction caught in the slipstream for sure. <laughs> Um, speculative fiction is an umbrella term encompassing the more fantastical fiction genre specifically. You ready for this list? Uh, science fiction, fantasy, horror, weird fiction, supernatural fiction, superhero fiction, utopian and dystopian fiction, apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic fiction, and alternate history and literature as well as related static motion and visual arts. All right. So it could mean practically anything, including I think everything you said about Slipstream. Yes. All right. See, so like, and and I guess my point is like, it pisses me off that I see this like on Amazon when I'm looking at you know, uh, um, synop like a synopsis of a book or you know something like that because like a reader can see this and what does that mean to a reader unless like you're you're you know to the typical person who just wants something good to read I don't think that necessarily is the best I mean like because like what would what would sound more enticing to a reader I write speculative fiction. Or something like I write scary futuristic stories with magic in them, or something like that. Like, yeah. well, certainly one of them is a little more definitive. Well, yeah, I mean, one tells you something, and the other one makes you feel bad for not knowing what they're talking about. Yeah, well, and that's back to what you're saying about neo noir. All that's saying is it's noir, only modern noir. Right. Like I get noir as a as a as a genre mm-hmm. because they're always very specific elements to it right um 
But yeah, and like I said, I mean, I'll defend anything that, that has magical in the term because you understand what I'm saying. If you picked up, uh, I, I don't know, the next Craig Clevenger book, what you're probably expecting is, you know, probably similar storytelling to his previous books, right? Yeah. But if someone says it's magical realism, you go, oh, crap, Clevenger's gone off the deep end and, and there's wizards and shit, you know? So, <laughs> but you should know that ahead of time, though. And, you know, if you choose to read it after that, that's that's great. Um, but, you know, that shouldn't be dropped on you. Much yeah. like, uh, I don't know, Clive Barker writing a romance novel. Yeah, I'd like to know up front that it's a, a romance novel because I might decide to go in a different direction than, you know, what I typically expect, which is speculative horror. Well, yeah, and I mean... It is necessary and useful to have classifications, but let's have a classification that makes sense to people. Like, speculative fiction, I mean, uh, until they start teaching in high school what speculative fiction is, or or slipstream, or when something is transgressive, which, we're really, what is transgressive? I mean, trans, all right, I'm not going to go into it. I'm just going (sighs) to, I'm just purging, purging right now. Um, Rightfully so, sir. Rightfully so. My point is, it's more useful for when you're when you're writing something that a a, a potential reader is going to see. It, something like speculative fiction or or neo noir is not going to draw them in. Something more descriptive, like even if you said I write noir that's in a modern setting, that's mm-hmm. way more useful than saying neo noir. So I don't know. It's just it's been getting it's. Been, Getting at me lately. It's been bugging me. Do you want to know what transgressive fiction is? I would love to. This this is probably the best one yet. I don't know. I think Slipstream being about airplane engines and stuff was probably the best. But um, Transgressive fiction is a genre of literature that focuses on characters who feel confined by the norms and expectations of society and who break free of those confines in unusual and or illicit ways. Yeah, th- I mean... Isn't that really what every story is kind of about? Also, yeah, I mean, like, uh, I was thinking the opposite. Like, I can't think of one thing that I could specifically like. That doesn't like. Oh, you mean like you know, like it doesn't give me an immediate example that springs to mind. I don't know. Yeah, transgressive. I'm gonna write a story that's um, transgressive towards the idea of transgressive fiction. <laughs> it's about an author trying to break out of the the. Um, <laughs> The expectations of literature branding in society. (laughs) Bizarro. I do like Bizarro as a... Yeah, because Bizarro, even hearing Bizarro, you're like, oh, it's probably weird. Yeah. Yep. Splatterpunk. Do you like Splatterpunk? I've read some Splatterpunk. It's uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's super gory. Super (laughs) slashery. Hyper-intensive horror with no limits. No, that just makes me think of, like, people with ADD. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, speaking speaking of ADD, I'm pretty sure we lost some of our listeners in this last little rant. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. Dude, can I ask a question though? Since it's a holiday. Yeah. Oh, what did you do for Father's Day today? <laughs> um. Oh, this is totally a setup. I knew that you were going to ask this. Um, <laughs> that what Livius is referring to is earlier today, realizing it was Father's Day. I um. All right. So my father passed away about nine and a half years ago he actually passed away on christmas eve of 2003 and um we had him cremated and, <laughs> and not having any kind of decorative ornamental urn or anything to put him in 
he's kind of just remained in the box that was <laughs> he was shipped in. He lived in Alaska, so it was kind of a uh, the, we had him cremated and he was shipped in, and uh, he's just kind of still in the box. So I pulled out the box and I took a picture of it and I posted it on Instagram and I said, "Happy Father's Day." Yeah, I'm thinking people thought I was some kind of monster when I asked you that, and you start talking about the history of your dad, but <laughs> he is still in an in a, like a priority air mailbox, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's all. I, I didn't know. I mean, like, I didn't know what to do. Like, <laughs> all right, but this is even brings up a better story. So, knowing that it was shipped to me, um, the keen eye will see that on the box um, there's a little handwritten thing that says L N. One five two thousand four with the uh, uh, initials, which means mm-hmm. that the postal uh, carrier left a note on our door saying this is at the post office waiting for you, because I wasn't there and it required like a signature. So because it's human remains, so <laughs> so I had to drive to the post office to pick up my father's cremated remains, and um, I get there, I pick up the remains, and then I'm struck with this like thought that like you never ever think about because this never happens to anybody is like where do I put him in the car because I want to be as respectful as possible but like also practical you know (laughs) I'm sorry (laughs) so he goes in the passenger seat and I buckle him in because I don't want you know if I have to hit the brakes I don't want a box of ashes flying up and hitting the dashboard again practical so dad's riding in the passenger seat buckled in but I'm hungry, so <laughs> I decide I'm going to run through the Taco Bell drive-thru on the way home. So I'm hit with Dilemma 2. Where do I put the food that's practical but also not super like insulting to my father's remains? Um, so the food actually went on the floor of the car, and Dad stayed in the seat by himself. Yeah. I would have to say that perhaps of all of the choices you've made throughout this whole story, that's the one I have to agree with the most. The Taco Bell? Yeah, that, that you didn't put the ashes on the floor. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't going in the trunk either. That was obvious. So, although, that I could have said I had a dead body in my trunk. Damn it, why didn't I think of that? Oh, another heartwarming <sighs> booked holiday story yeah. for the kids. Happy Father's Day, everybody. Oh, uh, yeah, happy Father's Day. Um, hey, you know what our next episode's going to be? I do, but I'm going to let you do the honors. Speaking of post office, oh, this is perfect. Such a great tie-in. <laughs> well, our next book review is going to be Rake by Scott Phillips. Um, it occurred to me only today that I've never read anything by Scott Phillips, which I'm a little embarrassed to say at this point. Yeah, it's really weird. I mean, like, we've known him so long. Um, do I get to do the honors of explaining why I said speaking of yes, the post office? Yes, absolutely. So... Uh, finding out that Rake was released, we kind of we found out or we it occurred to us to review it around the time that it was actually released. So I reached out to the publisher and I said, "Hey, you know, we're thinking of reviewing this. Um, you have a review copy, and obviously we prefer electronic copies, but for whatever reason, big time publishers always want to give print copies. So they asked for my address, gave them my address. Um, about a week and a half goes by, no book, and now, one, one hardcover book between two reviewers means that one has to read it and then, you know, because I'm not peering over Livius' shoulder um, as he's reading, because that would be really creepy, but it would probably make a good, like, postcard or something. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so we email him. I'm like, hey, what's going on with that book? Did you send it out? Did you get the right address? 
And they're like, oh, you should have gotten it by now. Let me send it out again by FedEx so we can track it. About a week goes by <laughs> and no book still. And I'm thinking, all right, so uh, we're getting to the point now that it's been a couple weeks and, and we've pushed off the, the review a couple times. And I'm like, eh, you know, we're talking about just passing on reviewing it because we need a book and it's been too long. So I send an email. I'm like, hey, you know, can you track this? <laughs> because uh, we still haven't received it. And the next morning they sent us a PDF copy of it. So what shows up about an hour after the PDF does? The FedEx copy that they sent me. Yep. So yeah. so now we have a hard copy and we have PDFs, which you know how much I love PDFs, right? Can I just tell you? Yeah. Yeah, please yeah. tell me. Uh, there will probably be zero quotes coming from Rake because it's in a PDF, which means I'm probably going to have to read it on my tablet, which means I can't highlight anything. So They basically gave us the two formats that we like the least and in the, in the most inconvenient way possible. So Can I tell you, I'm really excited to read this, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It looks Regardless good. Regardless of, yeah, of how hard the publisher is making it for us to review this. Mm -hmm. So Sometimes I think that, that they try to get in our way. They're trying to stop us. Trying to keep us down. I'm starting to think that. Mm. That's a real high note to end on. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of depressing. Um, but uh, what you may actually hear next, it, it could either be a review of Rake, or it could be an interview. Would you like to tell them who the interview is with? That's right. Tomorrow night, if all goes according to plan, we'll be sitting down and having a conversation with Dan O'Shea, author of Penance, which we recently reviewed. And um, yeah, having a conversation with him about a variety of topics, including his books and uh, the process of getting an agent and fun stuff like that. Yeah, like why he has to pick on Chicago politics, what it ever did to him. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we don't find out anything that's too, like, you know, <laughs> like we really feel bad that we asked that question. <laughs> oh, I don't think that's going to be the case, but I am looking forward to talking to Mr. O'Shea. I'm just looking forward to having his voice on the podcast. He's got an awesome voice. He's a very sexy sounding man. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tune back in in just a couple of days, I think, to hear uh, Daniel O'Shea um, talk with the boys here at Booked. Until then, I'm Livia Stedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading fan fiction. 